0: We are Lakeside Church, and we are here today to celebrate who God is, to be in community together. It's good to worship, isn't it? Yeah, right? Wow. It's been great for me. I've got to do it five times. So uh, it's sinking in, finally. How about that William Jessup? Oh, man, right? Woo, gosh. I tell you, man, that that, that was just so amazing. It just like practically made me speechless, but not really because I'm giving the message. So. We're kind of in an in-between spot this weekend. Uh, A couple weekends ago, Brad finished up our text series. And then last weekend, we had one of our elders, Carl Gruba, bring a powerful message. And now we're here. And uh, this kind of a weekend in the world of preachers is called a freebie. And basically what that means is uh, you can talk about whatever you want. Now, for most preachers, that's like winning, winning the preacher lottery. And most people just go, that's awesome. I can talk about whatever they want. Amazing. For me, not so much. Because uh, having a lot of choices is a little bit paralyzing for me. So like vanilla and chocolate, that's good. Like I can do that. But then, you know, when the array gets wider and wider, I start to get a little bit more anxious, a little bit more nervous, a little bit more stressed out. So Brad says to me, hey, by the way, your weekend's a free weekend. Talk about whatever you want. I was like, awesome. (gasps) Now, I've learned after a lot of years of doing this that uh, rather than going into my panic mode about it, it's just more useful and helpful if I just ask God about it. Yeah, duh, right? So uh, I just say, God, what do you want me to talk about this weekend? And, you know, more importantly, what do you want your people at Lakeside Church to hear? So as I was praying about it and thinking about it, God kind of brought me to this place. and, And basically, it was just like, why don't you talk about... What you're learning in your life about being in relationship with Jesus. Why don't, you, why don't you share that? I was like, okay, that works for me. So that's what we're gonna talk about today. We're gonna talk about something that God has been teaching me in, in my life. I hope it's encouraging to you, I hope it challenges you. Uh, most importantly, I, I hope it brings us nearer uh, to Jesus and empowers us to live more effectively for Him. So, what have I been learning about in my life? Well, right now, the thing that I have been learning about most profoundly and deeply in my life is I have been learning about shame. Really, I should say what I've really been learning about is I've been learning about living out of my God-given worth. I mean, living out of a place where not just in my head, but like in my gut, I know that I am worthy, that God has made me enough, that I am acceptable. But I have kind of come at that through the back door of shame, because I know a lot about shame. If you were with us this summer and got a chance to come to the Global Leadership Summit, you might have had the opportunity to hear Dr. Brené Brown. Uh, Brené Brown is a a professor at the University of Houston, and she works in the Graduate School of Social Work, and she is one of the uh, forefront researchers and writers and speakers on the topic of shame. Shame and courage and what's called wholehearted living. She's funny because she says, you know, I'll get on a plane and, you know, people inevitably ask you, hey, what do you do? And she goes, well, I'm a shame expert. She goes, that pretty much stops the conversation right there. It's kind of like when I go, I'm a pastor. and People go, that's neat. I'm just going to put my earphones in now, right? Uh, But Brene Brown is going to help us understand a little bit about shame. When when we talk about our worth, when we talk about our God-given worth, I don't think we can talk about it without addressing the issue of shame because shame is one of the things that gets in the way of us really being able to believe and live out of the reality that when God sees us, God says, you're enough. We're going to look at that by looking at a story in the Gospel of Mark. But before we do that, I kind of want us to just get a little bit of a working definition of shame. And we're going to count on Dr. Brene Brown to help us understand that. She says this in her most recent book, Daring Greatly. She defines shame this way. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Shame is destructive. Shame is pervasive. And shame draws us away from our God-given worth and takes us into a place that makes us believe we're not enough, we're not worth it, we're not valuable. It is, in fact, I believe, probably the strongest tool that the devil has in taking us out of relationship with God. Shame attacks the core of our identity. So, you know, there's two things. There's guilt and there's shame. So guilt actually is a good thing. You know, sometimes you go, oh, I felt so guilty because dot, dot, dot. A guilt kind of is a, it's a red flag for us. It says, hey, you know, maybe that thing that you did, you know, maybe when you lied or, you know, maybe when you did that, that wasn't a great thing. <laughs> that thing that you did, that, that thing was bad and, and that thing was wrong. And that's helpful for us because it kind of helps us reset our compass and go, yeah, you know what? That probably wasn't a good thing. I need to, I need to make some changes and, and do some things differently. That's what guilt does. Guilt is our friend. Shame is not, because while guilt says that was bad or wrong, shame says you are bad, and you are wrong. And that cuts to the core of what we truly believe about ourselves. Let me give you an example of what shame can look like in somebody's life. Shame comes to us in a lot of different ways. Some of us are are raised in families where we're given messages of shame, some of us I've heard it at school. Uh, Certainly in the culture that we live in, there's a lot of messages that get sent our way, and some of them are really shameful. And even, sadly, in the church sometimes, we're given messages of shame. When I was growing up, one of the uh, core messages of shame that I was given was this. You're so stupid. Uh, When anything in our family that I was involved in went wrong or just went awry or just was how families are, the message that was given to me was, how could you be so stupid? You are stupid, stupid, stupid. You're just an idiot. Now, that message uh, bore its way into my soul from the time I was young. And And it took a little place in there. So that if you had asked me in my life to define who I was, one of the things I would tell you is a long list of things. Oh, and by the way, I'm stupid. Last week, Dan and I were in Germany, and uh, we were traveling on some business of Dan's, and and I came along. I lived in Germany for a little while, so I I just wanted to show him kind of that part of my life that uh, he hadn't been involved in. And so... We were in Cologne and in Berlin. And when we were in Cologne, one morning he was working. He said, go go play. You know, go do whatever you want. Go into town and do some shopping, some sightseeing. And we had stumbled the day before on this really cool store that uh, we both liked. We both love, like, stationary products, you know, like pens and pads. And this store was like Mecca of like pens and pads. And was super cool because it was foreign. You know, you're like, oh, we don't have this pen in the United States. I need that, right? Dan and I love that stuff. So like we went into that store and we were like, whoa, this is Mecca. So I go, I'm going back to that store. So I just marched right back to that store. I just marched right there first time. Knew exactly where it is, which probably doesn't mean a lot to you, but it means a lot to me because I do not do directions well. I don't read maps well. I, can't, I don't even do Google where it talks to you well. I still end up sometimes in the wrong place. It's just kind of, it's a mystery to me. I don't know why it's that way. People say, yes, you are directionally challenged. And truly, that is the case. So to find it on the first try for me was like, I rock. I'm amazing. I found it in a foreign country on the first try. Dan and I met up for lunch later. And I go, what do you want to do this afternoon? He goes, I want to go to that store. And I go... I know where it is. I go, I got there today, first try. I know exactly how to get there. Now, Dan's been married to me for 22 years. So he's, you know, he's participated a little bit with me in my directional issues. So kindly, he just goes, are you, are you sure you know where it is? And I go, oh, yes. I don't even need the map. We're just going to march right there. You know where this story's going, don't you? Yeah. An hour later, and a couple of times uh, walking around the entire city of Cologne, We finally went into a Starbucks where they have free Wi-Fi and pulled up Google Maps and my husband, who knows how to read a map, uh, looked at it and was like, okay, well, you know what? We're just going to go this way, this way, and this way, and we'll find the store. So here's what happened to me in that Starbucks all the way across the world. You're so stupid. God, Libby, you're stupid. How could you be so dumb? How could you find it this morning and not find it this afternoon? What a fool. You are a Pool. that's what shame looks like now maybe it doesn't look like that for you uh, maybe there's other messages that you resonate with I mean maybe for you shame sounds something like this shame is getting laid off and having to tell my wife shame is screaming at my kids and realizing that my neighbor heard the whole thing Shame is the foreclosure sign on my front door. Shame is failing the test that I took at school. Shame is my son or my daughter getting arrested and the entire community knows about it. Shame is not getting the promotion that I was certain I had. Shame is my addiction, drugs, alcohol, gambling to porn to money to food shame is my obsession with perfection and my inability to be perfect shame is hearing my father's voice echoing in my mind every day you will never be man enough Shame is telling my parents, I didn't get into college. Shame is being alone in a world that celebrates and works in twos. Shame is painful. It's destructive and it's damaging. God has some things he wants to tell us about shame and worth. And I want to look at those together in Mark chapter 5. So turn with me to Mark 5. It's on page 702 in the Bibles that are right there on the chair, if you want to follow along. It's a story that tells us about shame and worth. And it uh, shifts the parameters of it. It gives us a different paradigm to look at it through. So we're going to start at verse 21, Mark 5, verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat... A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that the power had gone out from him, and he turned around in the crowd and he asked, who touched me? Who touched my clothes? You you see the people crowding around you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, Your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Well, Mark 5 has a couple of things to tell us, I think, about moving from shame into worth. And and the first one is this that the greatest enemy of our God given worth is shame. And we've got two, two main characters in this story besides Jesus. We've got Jairus. And Jairus is an insider. He's a synagogue leader, so that means uh, people know who he is. He's got a position of uh, prestige in the community. He is seen as an example. As a synagogue leader, he would know all the rules and regulations that went with the synagogue, he would be keeping them, Uh, he would be emulating what a good Jew would look like. He was important. And he had a daughter who was dying. Now, that's problematic for Jairus in two ways. The first one's obvious. It's problematic for him because it's his daughter, and she's dying. And any parent knows. Uh, But that's one of your worst fears. So you live with the anxiety of that. The second is a little more complicated. You see, in Jewish law and religion, if someone was sick or dying, particularly if they were young, there was something that happened that caused it, Uh, which means somebody did something wrong, and that's why this little girl was dying. Jairus knew this. The whole community knew it, and Jairus lived with the shame of being the leader, being the guy who was doing it right, and having a situation that said to everybody around him it was going very wrong. Imagine the kinds of conversations that were probably going around in that town. I mean, it's a small town. You know what small towns are like. Everybody knows everybody else's business. Can you imagine what people were saying? Oh, my gosh, what did Jairus do? I mean, his daughter's died. Something happened. What do you think it was? Well, maybe Jairus didn't do anything. Maybe it was his daughter that did it. Oh, my God, look at Jairus. God, how, that's, what's he doing? He's throwing himself at Jesus' feet. That's just that's degrading. Who does that? Who falls at the feet of that guy, Jesus? Ooh, I'm embarrassed for him. Leaders don't do that kind of thing. That's shameful. Can you hear those conversations? Can you hear those whispers? Can you hear those innuendos? Because I can. That's gyrus. On the inside track, doing it all right, living in shame with something that felt all wrong. Then we have the woman. Now, if Jairus is on the inside, she most certainly was on the outside. She's so on the outside, we don't even have a name for her. She's just the woman. We don't know her name, but I'm certain we know one thing about her. She knew what it was like to experience shame. Let me give, her, let me give you her shame stats. Number one, she was a woman. She was a woman in a society where women were invisible. They were devalued. They were only valuable for one thing, and that was for property. Number two, she was a woman who was bleeding for 12 years. In Jewish law, that meant she was what they called unclean. If you were unclean, that meant you had to separate yourself out from everybody else. You were kind of really kind of like a pariah. For that period of time. Well for her it was 12 years of being on the outs. 12 years of being a pariah. 12 years of having no friends. Because nobody's going to come near her. Because if they come near her. They become unclean. 12 years of nobody hiring her for a job. Because they would become unclean. 12 years. No man was going to marry her. Who would marry a woman who was unclean? Her family had thrown her out long ago. They were ashamed of her. Because she was unclean. She could not even go to the synagogue. She could not even worship God because the sign on the door said, unclean people not welcome. She was so uh, covered in shame, she did not even feel like she could approach Jesus face to face. She snuck in, she came through the back door, she kind of skulked through the crowd. Tried to touch him. She was so awash with shame that she didn't even think she could look Jesus in the eye. Shame owned her, owned her, and had taken away her God-given worth. You know, the story in Mark 5 has got two kind of extremes, right? I mean, when, when we're living kind of out of our shame and, and we're... We're struggling with our shame, and we're thinking we're not worthy before God. Oftentimes, we sort of react in one of two ways. We kind of go the gyver's route, where we go, you know what? I'm going to show God how good I am. I mean, I'm going to do it right. I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to make a list, and I'm going to do everything right. And God's going to see, like, how good I, how good I am, how worthy I am. And we just kind of get on that treadmill of, like, hyper-uber spirituality, which ends up failing us, because we cannot do enough. Then we have the other extreme. When we feel that kind of shame and lack of worthiness, some of us just go, you know, I'm hiding. I'm out. Peace out, God. I'm just hiding away. I'm not getting involved. Because if you really see me for who I am, you're going to be disgusted like everybody else. Here's the deal. Whatever extreme it is, neither of them work. Both of them keep us bound to our shame. Now, here's the good news in in Mark 5. The good news is the story of Jesus. The good news is that shame never has the last word in our lives. Shame never has the last word in our lives because shame is not in God's vocabulary. And what Mark 5 tells us, secondly, is this, that God wants us to live out of our God-given worth, not out of our shame, out of our inherent worth. Not out of her shame. Okay, what does that mean? Well, let's go back to Mark 5. So Jesus does a lot of amazing things in in the Bible. We all all know that if we know anything about Jesus. But he does a really remarkable thing in this story, I, I think. He manages, in one word, to obliterate the power of shame. And he does this with this woman. With the woman. The outsider. The shunned one. He does it in one word and that one word is daughter he calls her daughter he gives her a name a name that not only gives her an identity as belonging to him but by naming her he says guess what everybody she belongs to me can you imagine what that was like for her to hear jesus say daughter in front of all those people who over all those years had shamed her into no-nameness? Can you imagine how freeing it must have been for her to realize that Jesus was looking at her and saying, you matter, you're valuable, you belong to me? Can you imagine how heart-healing that was, how life-saving it was? That's the power of one word. That's the power of the name God gives us a name of intimacy, a name of belonging, a name of worth, a name of acceptance. I wonder what names you've been called or you've called yourself. Stupid? Failure? Worthless? Useless? lazy, you know what they are. You can hear them echoing in your head every day. Those are not the names that Jesus calls us. Those are not the names that Jesus calls us. Because Jesus calls us son. And Jesus calls us daughter. Jesus calls us enough. You know, when, when, when Jesus looks at us, he doesn't look at us and feel disappointed, like, oh, wow, hmm, okay, whatever. He doesn't look at us and go, you know, get your craft together, would you? He's not irritated with us. He doesn't look at us and go, wow, she was a mistake, <laughs> or he's a loser. No, when he looks at you, he says, look, look, look at that. Look at my creation. That's very good. When he looks at you, he says, you are beautiful. You are amazing. You are acceptable. You are enough. He delights over us when he looks at us. His heart beats fast when he looks at us. He has joy when he looks at us. He has pride about us. It's like Jesus would just get you under his arm and he goes, check her out, man. She's my daughter. Look at her because she's incredible. I mean, I just want to show her off to you. And takes you by that arm and he says, this is my son, this one right here. I am very, very fond of him because he's an incredible guy. You know, when God created us, the first word he spoke over us um, was very good. He looked at everything he made. He looked at male and female. He said, wow, you know, that's very good. Our worth comes to us purely from the fact that God created us. And secondly, from the fact that God proclaimed over us that we are very good. Now, let's be clear. Do we sin? Yes, we do. We do. We we blur that image, you know, of God's goodness. But let me be clear about something. While we sin, our sin is not our identity. My name's Libby Vincent, and I sin. But my identity is not sinner. My name's Libby Vincent, and I'm a daughter. You're a son. You're a daughter. Our brokenness is real. It's a part of our life, but it is not the defining principle of who we are in the sight of God because when God calls us by name, he calls us his beloved. One of my uh, favorite books that I read in the last year, Actually, I was introduced to it by a family in our church, the Grubas. Um, It's called Tattoos on the Heart. If you have not read this book, buy it and read it. I don't say that very often about a book. Um, this, this book is written by a guy named Father Greg Boyle. Uh, he's affectionately known in his community as G. He runs a ministry uh, down in L.A. that brings men and women who have been in the life of gangs, who have really been in a life of of shame, And he brings them out of that and provides them opportunities to regain their identity as sons and daughters who are worthy and valuable and important in the eyes of God. In this book, he chronicles many of the stories of the people that he works with and encounters in homeboy industries. The stories in this book are, are really uh, very profound stories. I mean, some of these stories are just, they're heartwarming, you know? Some of them will break your heart. The thing that I loved about this book most of all was that in all of these stories, there was a thread that ran through it, and it was this very thread of knowing and living out of the fact that we are enough, that we're holy and truly acceptable to God when he looks at us. I want to I read just a highlight from one of these stories for you. G writes, I, I had a 23-year-old homie named Miguel uh, working for me on our graffiti crew. Uh, As with a great many of our workers, I I had met him years earlier while he was detained. He was an extremely nice kid whose pleasantness was made all the more remarkable by the fact that he had been completely abandoned by his family. Uh, Prior to their rejection of him, they had mistreated, abused, and scarred him plenty calls me one new year's day happy new year g hey that's very thoughtful of you, dog i say (laughs) you know miguel i was thinking of you you know on christmas so so what did you do for christmas oh you know he says i was i was right here meaning in his tiny apartment where he lives all by himself all by yourself i asked oh no he says quickly, I invited homies from the crew, you know, vatos like me, who had no place to go for Christmas. So I ask him, what'd you do? Well, he says, you're not going to believe this, G, but I cooked a turkey. <laughs> you can feel his pride coming right through the phone. I said, well, that's impressive. Go, what else did you th- have besides the turkey? Just that, just turkey, he says. His voice tapers to a hush. Yeah, the six of us, we just sat there, staring at the oven, waiting for the turkey to be done. Not long after this, I give Miguel a a ride home after work. I, I had long been curious about Miguel's own certain resilience. When we arrived at his apartment, I say, can I ask you a question? How do you do it? I mean, given all that you've been through, all the pain and the stuff you've suffered, how are you like the way you are? Well, Miguel has his answer at the ready. He says, you know, G, I always suspected That there was something of goodness in me. But I just couldn't find it. Until one day. He quiets a bit. One day. I discovered it here. In my heart. I found it. Goodness. And ever since that day. I have always known who I was. He pauses, caught short by his own truth, and turns and looks at me. And now Miguel says, nothing can touch me. She continues, you know, everyone is just looking to be told that who he or she is is right and true and wholly acceptable no need to tinker and tweak exactly right no need to tinker and tweak exactly right wow imagine what it would look like if we lived like that I mean, imagine what it would look like if inside, deep in our souls, I mean, way deep down inside, planted in there with deep roots, we believed that when God saw us, we were holy and truly acceptable and right, and that right now, right in this very moment, we were enough. Imagine what that would look like. Wow, that would be freeing, wouldn't it? That would be freeing. I mean, that would free us from some of the things that we do, some of the choices that we make when we live out of our shame. You know, sometimes when we hear people talk about being holy and acceptable before God, we get a little bit nervous because we go, Well, yeah, but, you know, we got that whole sin thing going on, Libby. I mean, let's not, like, you know, make us sound too great. Yeah, you know what? We do have that sin thing. That's right. Here's the deal, though. When you live out of a place of knowing and believing that you're wholly acceptable before God, that you are loved exactly where you are right in this very moment and that in God's eyes you are enough. Those things that are destructive in our lives, those things that draw us away from God's best for us, they lose their attraction. They lose their attractive choice. It doesn't mean we'll be sin free, uh, but it means that we'll begin to make choices that give us life instead of death. It means that we'll choose wholeness over brokenness. We, we don't need to worry about whether we're doing it right or wrong because you know what? When you're living out of that space, you know where you belong. Imagine what it would look like for us as a church. I mean, wouldn't it be amazing? Think about it. You come in every week and somebody just taps you on the arm during the meet and greet and goes, Hey, I just want to remind you, you're enough. Hey, son. Hey, daughter. Hey, in case you forgot, you're acceptable, you're worthy. Imagine what that would be like for us. I think it would be incredible. Imagine what it would be like for our community. If we just lived out of that space and we just did our life and we we just lived out of being loved, you know what people would do? They would be like, I don't know what's happening in that lakeside church, but I want a piece of it. Because when I walk in those doors, I experience people who know they're loved and they're loving me. They know they're accepted and they're accepting me. They know they're enough and they're telling me I'm enough. I don't walk in there and feel judged or condemned or less than. It would be revolutionary. It would be a little scary, because I think it's scary for us to live out of that much love, to be honest. But I know it would be exactly what God wants. So how do we get there? What, what are some things we can do? I want to give you a couple of tools that have been really helpful for me as I've been kind of journeying through my own issues with shame. So the first one is this. You know what? I've been just getting into the Bible, and I've just been finding verses that say I'm awesome. I mean, they're for everyone. They're not just exclusive to me. <laughs> But I've just been going through the Bible, and I'm like, where are those verses that say that I'm a Christ? You know, there's verses all throughout the Bible. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. God says, I've inscribed you on the palm of my hand, and you are mine. And I've just been taking verses like that, and I'm just trying to soak them in. I'm just trying to soak them in so that when those voices of shame come, I put my shame shield up, and I go, no, uh-uh, because God says this. So back off thing i've been doing is i've been writing in a journal i'm so not a journaler not no not okay but i've just been finding that i've just been keeping this little pad with me and then when i hear those voices of shame i write them down and i ask myself where did that come from because it didn't come from god and i ask god god help me to identify that the origin of that place so i can you can help me root it out and the last thing I've been doing is I have been inviting people into my shame. And this has probably been the piece of this that's been most scary to me. Um, I have a couple people uh, who I have trusted. And I sit with them and I just go, I got to tell you something I'm ashamed of. And you know there's a risk in that because, you know, what if they hear it and then they go, well, yeah, you should be ashamed of that because that's horrible. God, right? <laughs> I know there's a risk in that. But these are people who, you know, what they look at me and they go, Libby. Here's what I know is true about God, and they tell me the truth. They 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 really present God to me. They really are God for me. Um, I talk with other pastors too. You know, as a pastor, I think pretty much every pastor I know, if they're telling the truth, will tell you that pretty much every day we go, we kind of feel like an impostor. Like people are like, you're a pastor. You're so spiritual and close to Jesus. And most of us are like, not really. Thanks. I am. It's horrible. I just go with other pastors and I go, anybody else here feel like an imposter? I do. And I'll tell you something. When you speak out, shame, hands start raising. Really? Me too. Oh, my gosh. And the last thing I've been doing is I've just been sitting with a therapist every week. Oh, my God, we're digging. (laughs) Pulling up the roots, man. It's hard work. It's painful, but you know what you got? I don't want to live out of my shame. I want to live out of my identity as a daughter. I want to live out of acceptance. I want to live out of wholeness. This is my prayer for our church. This is my hope. This is my prayer. This is my passion for us, that we will live knowing who we are. The free weekend... The freebie, the preach on whatever you want, the anxiety, the shame, that I might not get it right, has been overturned. Give me a free weekend any day. Let's pray. God, we're grateful. Oh, we're grateful. You know, it's overwhelming for me, man. Know that just right now, right as we're sitting here, right this very moment, you're looking upon us, and you are saying to us, "You are enough. I made you. I called you very good. I made a. I, I bridged the gap. You're enough." Lord, give us courage to live like that. Man, it, it takes work. We know that. We got to look at some demons that are scary and hard. And, we're afraid of, but God, with you, we can do that. With each other, we can do that. Make us, God, people who dare greatly and live fully and change the world for the sake of Jesus. And we pray it in your name. Amen.